Thank you, men. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. John, chapter 3, in your Bibles this morning. What a wonderful song. Talking about uh, the glory of God being proclaimed to all of the nations. You remember as we've been studying through the Gospel of John so far, back in chapter 1. John, the beloved of Christ, he was the disciple known as that disciple who was closest to Jesus. And he penned down these words in chapter 1 and verse 10. He said, he was, speaking of Jesus, he was in the world and the world was made by him. The world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name which were born, not of blood, not, we're not saved because we were born into a Christian family, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. We're not saved because we hope that we are, or we wish that we are. That's not how a person is saved. Nor of the will of man. It's not by human design. Salvation is not by human design. It's not through water baptism. It's not through religion, no matter what. Name is on the sign. It's not by human design. It's not by the will of man, but of God. And then in verse 14 he said, And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that last statement there, as I told you before in our study, was, is a Hebraism. Hebraism and uh, it has the idea that that he was full of grace and truth has the idea that it's the sum total of the divine revelation of God, which is almost beyond our comprehension. Jesus, in human flesh, was the sum total of a, a divine revelation of God himself in human flesh. And uh, as was just sung a moment ago, uh, it is God's will that the glory of God would be spoken forth and presented to the whole world and he wants to do that through you and through me. Do you know that? Um, you and I are not Jesus. There is no question about that. However, those of us who are born again are indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. And God's will for you and for me is still that he would be seen in us. He would be seen in us. Now, we've been studying through the book of John so far. We're here in chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 14 and following. But before we get there, look back to chapter 2 for just a moment and look at verse 23. Those last few verses of chapter 2 certainly were interesting. They gave us some pause for thinking. And uh, you remember how in those three verses it's, it's declared to us that there were people who believed in Jesus. They believed upon him because of the miracles that they saw. But Jesus didn't believe in them. In other words, they had a form of faith in him, but Jesus knew that it was not true or genuine or saving faith. I might call this kind of faith common faith. And we'll talk about that a little bit later in the message this morning. But look back at verse 23 of chapter 2. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, Many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. And when we read that, we would be quick to say, well, amen, or praise the Lord, or wow. And we might even think that Jesus' response might have been, wonderful, people are believing in me. But Jesus, of course, knew them. And in verse 24, the Bible says, but Jesus did not commit, same word, as believed, up in verse 23, Jesus did not believe, commit himself unto them, because he knew all men. He knew them. They had a form of faith in him, but Jesus looked at them and he knew their faith for what it really was. In verse 25 it says, And he did not that any, man should or, and not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Last week, we started in chapter 3, and, and one of these people who believed in Jesus for the miracles that he did, but wasn't saved, wasn't born again, came to Jesus by night. This man's name was Nicodemus. 
And you remember how we, as we looked and studied last week in the first three verses of chapter 3, we saw that it's possible to be religious, but not saved. You know, everybody, religion, um, religion can be a discipline. And of course, every one of us have different levels of discipline, don't we? And so there are some folks who are religious, and we might consider them to be very religious. That is, they give a lot of money, and they never miss a service. Uh, they give a lot of their time. They give a lot of their abilities. They are what we might call faithful. They're always there. They're doing religious things to a very high level, and most of us would say those folks are religious. And then you have others on the other side, or the other extreme of what we might call religious. We have folks who would Maybe they don't have the same level of discipline. They aren't as faithful in attending services or, or maybe in giving or maybe they struggle. Their struggles are more obvious, okay? But yet, if you were to engage them or I were to engage them in conversation, they would say that they believe in God and they believe that Jesus is the Son of God and, and, uh, and they believe they're going to heaven someday and, and they would believe that they're religious. Okay, And then you have every... Every, all kinds of folks in between. There are a lot of people in the world today that are religious, but I want you to see from this passage, Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. He would have been a Pharisee, which when we hear the word Pharisee, we're like, well, that, that's not good. But you know, in those days, it would have been an acceptable, uh, reputable position to hold, a title to hold. They were the conservatives of their day, religiously. They studied the Bible, the Old Testament. They would have known it. They would have said they believed it. They would have said that they, had, they held to it. They would have walked according to it. Nicodemus was a religious man to the extreme, is what I want you to see. And yet Jesus, as Nicodemus comes to Jesus this particular night, by night, so no one will see him, he comes to Jesus and he acknowledges, you've been sent. He's talking to Jesus. He says, you've been sent by God. You have the power of God upon you. You're a good teacher. You see, Nicodemus believed in Jesus in that Jesus could do miracles. That Jesus was powerful. That Jesus was enjoyable to listen to. But Jesus looked at Nicodemus and he said... Ye must be born again. And so it's possible to be religious, but not saved. We also saw in our study last week that to be born again is spiritual birth. And it really has the idea of to be cleansed from our sin on the inside. You know, we, we all look, everybody looks so nice today. You know, everybody gets ready and comes to church on Sunday. And if you're like our house, you know, we're trying... You know, the children, they take their showers the day before, you know, so try to get it done early enough in the day so they don't have bedhead. You know what that is, right? Poof. You know, and you can't. It doesn't matter what you spray on it. You're not going to get it to go down at all, you know. And, and we go to such lengths to make ourselves look presentable when we come to church, right? And that's fine, and that's good. It's a good thing to do that. I, I can tell you that. Biblically, it's a good thing to do that, um, to consider what we wear and why we wear what we wear and prepare ourselves to come and gather with God's people and, and worship the Lord together. That's a good thing. But you know what? Man looketh on the outward appearance, and God looketh on the heart. And here Jesus says to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And you remember how Nicodemus misunderstood that? He said, how can, this is a man now, Nicodemus says to Jesus, says, how can a man, a full-grown man, enter into his mother's womb a second time to be born again? And Jesus is saying, you're missing the point. You don't need to be physically born again. You need to be born again spiritually. You have a need, Nicodemus, even a religious man. You have a need that the Spirit of God would cleanse you on the inside. And we, we looked at that and we studied that. We also saw last week that there should be evidence of a new birth. In verses 7 and 8 of chapter 3, there, there, there needs to be evidence that you've been born again. There ought to be evidence in your life that you've been cleansed on the inside. Now, I'm not saying that any of us here are perfect, and I'm certainly not perfect. Uh, we still are tabernacled in this wicked flesh, okay, that we call a human body. 
but there ought to be evidence of a new birth. There should be evidence in your life that the Spirit of God lives there. There ought to be sacrificial love that flows out of you that your children can see and that your spouse can see and that your fellow church members can see. There ought to be a sacrificial love and there ought to be a joy. Even through hard times, there ought to be a joy and there ought to be a peace that passeth all understanding. When you're going through difficult things that we call life, there ought to be a peace that passeth understanding, all understanding. There ought to be evidence in your life. And and Jesus gave the illustration to Nicodemus. You know, Nicodemus, you... You, you see what the wind does. Now, I've not, asking, I've not asked the Lord to give us any illustrations of this today, okay, with these strong winds, that whatever they're going to be. So, but you and I have seen this, right? We, we don't see where the wind comes from. We don't necessarily see where it goes. We can't see the wind itself, but we can see what the wind does. And that's the illustration Jesus gave to Nicodemus. And, and the illustration, the application for you and for me is, For those of us who have been born again by the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God lives within us, and He's working in our hearts and our lives, you can't see the Holy Spirit of God in a person who's saved, but you can see what the Holy Spirit is doing. You ought to be able to see that. And if you can't see that in your life, you ought to be troubled. You shouldn't leave here holding on to one thing that I say, and, and say, you know what, or, or holding on to an experience that you've had in the past. Well, I prayed a prayer, or I walked an aisle, or I wrote down a date. You shouldn't hold on to those things for your assurance of salvation. The Spirit of God will be your assurance. and His evidence in your life ought to be there. And that brings us to our text, and I want to answer the question this morning, well, what is required then for a new birth? What is required then for a person to be born again? And look at chapter 3 of John, and look with me beginning in verse number 14. I'll read down through verse 17. Jesus gives another illustration that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with. In verse 14, Jesus says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, the Son of Man, be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us today. I believe, for the most part, I'm speaking to people who are born again. Lord, I also imagine that there are some in this room who have never been born again. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving your Son to die in our place, to take all of our filthy, wicked sin upon his pure, spotless body, blameless, and die for us. Father, I pray for those of us who are born again. Father, I pray that our love for you would be so obvious to all around us. For we love you because you first loved us. I pray you'd you'd bless us now as we study your word. In Christ's name, I ask these things. Amen. So, this morning we'll look at the basis for the new birth, or the basis for being born again. How, How can a person be born again. Now, some of you in this room, you are born again, but you might have a loved one who's not. You might have a grandchild who's not. Uh, You might have a husband or a wife who's not, a neighbor, a co-worker. So what we're talking about here, though familiar verses for the most part, uh, I hope that you pay close attention. It ought to rejoice our hearts for we who are saved and ought to help us be prepared to share the good news with others. Okay. Um, how can a person be born again? Well, first of all, I, I notice that there's a sacrifice that Jesus Christ draws Nicodemus' attention to. It would be impossible for a person to be born again without a sacrifice being made for the person who needs to be saved. Now, Nicodemus, in our text, is the man who needs to be saved. From his sin. He's a religious man. 
but he's not saved. He's never been born again. It would be impossible for a person to be born again without Jesus' sacrifice for us. Now, hold your place in John 3, and we're going to turn to a couple portions of Scripture. Look over to Romans, would you? Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, in verse number 6. Romans chapter 5, in verse number 6. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, and I'll read down through verse 8, the Bible says, For when we were yet without strength, we were helpless, is the idea, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. That's who he died for. He died for the ungodly. Verse 7, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die but god commendeth he showed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners while we were yet going through the motions of sin and rebellion against him christ died for us he died for us Now, you're in John chapter 3. Look there. You should have your finger there. Look at verse 14. And notice the illustration that Jesus gives to Nicodemus as we consider this idea of there needs to be a sacrifice for our sin. In verse number 14 of John 3, Jesus uses an an illustration that we we might not have identified as a picture of Christ had Jesus not drawn our attention to it here. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, just like Moses lifted up a bronze serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, be lifted up. I want to consider this for just a moment. You can turn to Numbers, if you would. Hold again your place in John 3, but look back to Numbers, because I want to see what Jesus was talking about here, what he was drawing Nicodemus' attention to. What is this serpent in the wilderness? What does that have to do with Jesus Christ? What does this have to do with a person being born again? Well, we know from the New Testament that the sacrificing of Jesus Christ upon the cross, him dying on the cross, was God's provision for sinful man. That's why God sent his son to die. And Jesus is reminding Nicodemus in John chapter 3 of a story in the Old Testament that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with as a scholar and a student of the Old Testament. And this story back in Numbers chapter 21, where you've found your place now, the story in Numbers chapter 21 is a story of sin. It's a story of sin in Numbers chapter 21. When the nation of Israel rebelled against God and was punished for it. In fact, we'll read it, but God sent fiery serpents, poisonous snakes, as punishment upon his people for their disobedience and rebellion against God. And the fiery serpents, the Bible tells us, these poisonous snakes began to bite the people, and the people began to die. And not just a few, but many of the people began to die. The story that we're going to read in just a moment is also a story of grace. It's a story of sin, but it's also a story of grace. Because Moses, the leader of the nation of Israel at that time, by the way, people of Israel on more than one occasion hated Moses. On more than one occasion, they complained and murmured, complained about how he led and what he did and what he didn't do, how he did what he did. And in some instances, they even talked about killing him. Well, Moses interceded for his people because he loved them, even if they didn't love him back. And Moses interceded for the people that God would spare them. And he asked God to spare them, and God provides a remedy. It's also a story of faith. Because while it's a story of sin, it's a story of grace, It's also a story of faith in in that to be saved from the snake bites and the consequences for their rebellion and sin, they had to obey God's word if they wanted to be saved. 
Look, look there, Numbers chapter 21. Look with me at verse number 4. Verse 4. Now read down through verse 9. And the Bible says, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Have you ever been discouraged in, what, in, the, in the path that you have to walk as a person? Are you ever discouraged by that? I have been. I have been. I think if you're alive, you have been discouraged at some point going through life. Well, they were. They were discouraged. And the word discouraged is interesting. It means grieved, by the way. Because they are going to sin, okay? The people of Israel are going to sin in this text. They're going to complain and murmur, okay? But they were grieved. They were hurting. They were discouraged. Verse number 5. And the, and the people spake against God. They spake against God and against Moses. And notice what they say. Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Why have you, why have you delivered us out of Egypt and out of slavery and out of bondage to now suffer and die in the wilderness? Some of us kind of feel like that sometimes. Lord, why did you save me so that I'd struggle so badly in this life? Have you ever been there? Lord, you saved me. Uh, shouldn't it just be easy street from here? Without any struggles and any challenges and any difficulties, no heartache. And this is where the people of Israel were. Why have you delivered us? Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. Well, it turns out there was some bread. It just wasn't the kind that they liked. Verse 6. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people. And much people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. And I love that they repented and they took responsibility for their sin. For we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And isn't it wonderful how Moses there, how forgiving he was to the people? Because they were just complaining about him. They hated him. They despised him, at least at this point in their lives, and yet he doesn't hold it against them. He loves them. And you and I could learn from Moses. We ought to, we ought to interact with people the same way. Look at verse number 8. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent... And set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. Now this, by the way, is not, this is a narrative, okay? It's historical fact. This happened. This is not instruction for you and for me to go home and get some, some sort of metal and make some sort of a serpent on a pole and set it in our front yard, okay? I don't think I need to say that, but I'm going to say it just so you know. Verse number 9. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Hmm. So again, in this passage, we see sin. They complained against their leadership. They complained against God. And whenever we complain about our leadership, we're complaining against God. You do understand that, don't you? You understand that? Say, well, you don't know my, you don't know my, the teacher my child has at school. If you knew the teacher, you'd know she'd be okay to complain against him. Maybe he's not the best teacher. That may be true, but you shouldn't complain. And if you do lead your children to complain against their authority, they're going to complain about you, and you can expect that. Okay, so brace yourself for it. It's not going to be enjoyable, and there are always consequences for complaining against leadership. Why? Because the New Testament truth is leadership is something that God ordains, and he sets people in positions of leadership. Okay? So there was sin. They certainly sinned, but there was also grace. And then we also see there's repentance in this passage, and God gives a remedy. And the snake here that Moses lifted up in the wilderness was meant to be a picture, and only a picture. We might say not a very good picture. When you think of a snake, it's hard to... Uh, connect that to Jesus, but he's only a picture of Jesus who was hanging upon the cross for you and for me. Now, when we read about this passage in Numbers, there are four facts that I think become crystal clear. Number one, the people had sinned. The people had sinned. 
Um, sin. What, what, is, what is sin? Well, every person here has broken God's law. Sin is missing the mark. The word sin literally means to miss the mark. I enjoy hunting. I enjoy shooting things at targets. Uh, other things, I've missed the mark. Anybody who's hunted, you've missed the mark before, haven't you? You've missed the mark. When I would go duck hunting with a friend of mine, you know, all these ducks would come in, and you had to pick one. You couldn't shoot the flock. If you shoot the flock, you won't hit any, okay? But when the flock's all coming in, and they're beautiful, you know, and you hear all this sound and noise, and the adrenaline's going, the tendency is to shoot the flock. Just shoot at the ducks. And you, don't ever, you never hit me if you do that way, really. I never did anyway. But the mark is God's holiness. And, 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 and I can aim at God's holiness, and I can, I can attempt with everything I have to measure up to God's holiness, but the reality is if you and I are in a competition and we're trying to hit the bullseye and we're competing to see who's the best shot and the, the goal is the bullseye, if I miss the mark by... Let's just say you miss it by a quarter of an inch or just outside of the bullseye, maybe an eighth of an inch off the bullseye, and I miss the entire target. And you get a big har-har out of that because I missed the entire target, not just the bullseye. You've, you've beaten me. You're closer than I am. But the reality is we've both missed the mark. The mark is the bullseye. That's the goal. And the holiness of God is the goal. And the reality is that none of us in and of ourselves can hit the mark of God's holiness. And sin, the word sin means to miss the mark. The Bible tells us that all have sinned. All of us have missed the mark and come short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one, not even one. In the Old Testament, in the Ten Commandments, and I'm not going to read through all of them, but they help us understand that we've missed the mark. The first of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You know that a, a, a god, a false god, is an idol. An idol can be defined as anything that I love with all my heart. Anything that I love with all of my heart. Or anything that I can't stop thinking you know, most of us, when we think of idols or false gods, none of us, I doubt, I doubt it, don't tell me if you do, but I doubt any of us have a shrine in our homes with candles lit up and these statues and we bow down before them. That's really not a part of our culture, is it? It's been part of many cultures and still is throughout our world today, but it's not really a part of American cultures. But I dare say that Americans are some of the most idolatrous people on the face of the earth. We may not have a shrine set up like that in our home, but we are still, we are still prone to false gods. We love things with all of our heart. There are things we can't stop thinking of. There are things that we put before God. And, and you have to identify what it is in your own life. And I have to identify what it is in my life. Even for us, we who are born again, we still have a tendency that is through our flesh to prop up idols. What is it in your life? Is there anything in your life that you put before God? It's an idol. Is there anything in your life that you give all of your love, that you look to for deliverance, you look to for satisfaction, you look to for joy, you look to that for, to, to, to bring you happiness in your life? And, you, and, and the reality is when we look to something else, and it could be a narcotic, it can be a friendship or a relationship, it can be anything else, you see... Even our family can become an idol in our lives. He says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. He speaks again, the third commandment in Exodus is, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. To take God's name in vain is to, certainly would be using God's name as a cuss word or a swear word. Connecting one of God's name, like Lord or Jesus or Christ, with a foul four-letter word, certainly we would all agree that that would be taking God's name in vain. But you know that to take God's name in vain merely requires that we use God's name flippantly or carelessly with little or no thought. Now, I'm talking about God's law here. Another is thou shalt not commit adultery. Adultery is sex outside of marriage, out of the marriage covenant. 
the marriage relationship. But in the New Testament, Jesus raises the bar. And in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 28, the latter part, he says, Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not steal. Growing up when I was little, I loved pickles. Something fierce. I love pickles, and I still enjoy pickles. But now I buy them. I can eat them whenever I want. It's not stealing. But when I was little, I didn't buy them. I couldn't eat them whenever I wanted. My grandmother, Grandma Ferguson in Detroit, she would always buy the pickle spears. And she had a little pickle tray, and, and it was my job for the family reunions to carry the pickle tray downstairs to the basement where we were all going to eat. And she would pile it up, you know, and of course I didn't want to spill any, so I would lighten the load a little on the way down. And she knew, she, she knew, she, she would say, you know, there's a couple extra for you, and she'd wink at me, you know, Grandma Ferguson. And I would carry the pickles down the stairs, eating them as fast as I could. And then she would come in behind me and she'd load it up again, you know, because there wasn't enough for the family by the time Seth got done stealing her pickles. It was kind of a wink-wink kind of agreement we had with each other. But, you know, whether it's stealing pickles or stealing something worse, worse than that or larger than that, the commandment is still, thou shalt not steal. How about thou shalt not bear false witness? As the idea of not lying, not leading someone to believe a lie. Thou shalt not covet. And again, in the New Testament, the word covet is identified. Covetousness is idolatry. And now we've come almost first full circle again. And, and we might, as we hear these truths of the Ten Commandments this morning, we might say, well, I'm not a criminal, Seth. But who of us here can say that we haven't broken God's law? And that's the point. The book of James, chapter 2 and verse 10 says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. We're, we tend, people by nature, we tend to be pretty good at prettying ourselves up as best we can and having all kinds of lofty standards or different standards. We, everybody has standards. And saying, you know what, I'm not as bad as those people over there. But the reality is, about mankind, is all of sin. All have missed the mark of God's holiness, and we've all come short woefully short of the glory of God. And when I look at this text in Numbers chapter 21 that Jesus directs Nicodemus' attention to, I can't help but notice that these people had sinned. They had complained. They had murmured. They were complaining against God. They were complaining against their leadership. And God says it's sin. And it's so sinful that I'm actually going to bring judgment, intense consequences upon you because of your rebellion and your complaining spirit against your leadership because you're complaining against God. And they knew it, by the way, they knew it. Some of it, in our day and age, I think we do it, we do it ignorantly. I think we've almost gotten to the point where complaining about our leadership and about what God's brought into our lives, we've almost put ourselves in such a pedestal that we don't even acknowledge that it is sinful. They at least knew that it was. They had sinned. There's also a truth here that they were dying. They were dying. It's the second fact I noticed from this passage. They were dying. They were dying. Romans 6 and verse 23 says the wages of sin is death. The payment for sin is death. The penalty for sin is death. Death is separation from God. And by the way, God is always just. You know, when we just read this passage in Numbers 21, did any of you hear... When you read that passage, did you think, wow, fiery serpents and people dying because they, they complained about their leadership and about God? Don't you think that's a bit harsh? Don't raise your hand, but did any of you think, well, that's a little harsh? You know why we're, we're, we have a tendency to think of our sin as not so bad as it is? Because we don't think of God as high as we ought to think of him. Our sin never looks so bad when we have, than when we have demoted God in our thinking. In fact, the more we demote God in our thinking, which would be to dishonor him, and the word would be despise him in the Old Testament, the more we despise God, which is to demote him in our thinking, 
We can't demote him because he is who he is. We can demote him in our thinking. The more that we do that, the better we look in our own eyes. They were dying. The Bible speaks of death in several places. He speaks of spiritual death. Spiritual death is when mankind is separated from God by sin. You remember in the Garden of Eden, God had told Adam and Eve of the fruit of the the tree there of, of good and evil. Thou shalt not eat of it, and in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Did Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of that tree? Yes or no? Did they die that day like God said they would? They didn't die physically, they died spiritually. Spiritual death. And before they had enjoyed the fellowship of God, walking and talking with Him there in the Garden of Eden. But now there had been a, there was a break in the relationship, in the, in the fellowship. There was separation, spiritual separation. There had been spiritual death. And so the Bible says, death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. And so that's why... When Cindy and I gave birth, she gave birth, we had four children uh, together. But that's why when those four children were born into this world, they were all born into this world spiritually dead. Physically alive, but spiritually dead. Spiritually separated from God by sin. And all four of them have had to come to a place in their lives where they believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ so that they might be made spiritually alive again and have relationship with God. There's spiritual death. The Bible talks about that. There's physical death. Physical death is something we're familiar with. Physical death is when the soul and spirit is separated from the body. Physical death is when we lose a loved one and we can't look into their eyes anymore on this earth. We can't hold their hand anymore. There's an ache in our heart that goes very, very deeply because there's been separation, physical death. By the way, physical death should serve as a reminder of, to us of sin and separation. There's a third kind of death the Bible talks about, and that's eternal death. Eternal death is eternal separation from God. It's when someone dies spiritually dead... Being spiritually dead, they're separated with God, but they die in that condition. They die spiritually dead, spiritually separated from God, and therefore they are eternally separated from God. There is never any fellowship that they have with their Creator. Eternal separation from God. Only unsaved people will stand before Christ at the great white throne judgment. 2 Peter 3.9, I should remind you of this, by the way. It says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus speaks of these words, I believe in reference to the great white throne judgment. And Jesus says this, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works. Jesus says, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 15 says, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast, literally hurled into the lake of fire. These people had sinned, and these people were dying. Now, can I ask you, do you believe that you have sinned? Do you believe that you have missed the mark of God's holiness? Do you believe that you are in your sin and that you're dying, that you are spiritually dead, spiritually separated from God, and on your way, deservingly, to a place of eternal punishment called hell? Now, for those of us who are born again, we can say, thank God, that's who I used to be, but I'm not that person anymore because God saved me. But these people had sinned, and they were dying. I also noticed that there was nothing they could do to save themselves. There was nothing that they could do to save themselves. They could try to kill all the snakes they wanted. Uh, They could could try to avoid the snakes. If they got bit, they could 
take maybe some medication, or they could do whatever. They could try their best. They could pray. They could, they could uh, uh, seek medical help from a physician. They could do anything they wanted to do, but there was nothing that they could do to save themselves. I also notice, fourthly, that they knew that only God could help them. They knew that only God could help them. Now, again, I ask you, are these four facts true about you? Do you believe that you have sinned? Do you believe that you are dying? Do you believe that there's nothing you can do to save yourself? Do you, do you believe that only God can help you? And that's the question. And, and Jesus, actually, as he's speaking to Nicodemus on the rooftop, he refers Nicodemus to this historical event. And Nicodemus is saying, what do I need to do? Do I need to go back to my mother's womb to be born again? What, what are you talking about? And Jesus is saying, no, you need to be cleansed on the inside. And now he's illustrating to Nicodemus how Nicodemus can be cleansed on the inside. And how is that? By looking to Jesus Christ alone. That's how. Not through church membership. Not through water baptism. Not through giving not through trying to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, not by trying to be a better person, not by going through a program, but by looking to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Or to look to Jesus Christ. You know, really, I think Jesus gave these people in the Old Testament a very unusual remedy, don't you think? Moses, make a bronze serpent, a bronze fiery serpent, and put it on a pole. What? I mean, God could have just spoken, and they all could have been healed. God could have just said, you've prayed, let it be so. And everybody could have been healed. But God wanted these people to know that they, they had sinned, that they were dying, that there was nothing they could do to save themselves, and he wanted them to acknowledge, he wanted them to exercise faith and obey his word, to take him at his word to be saved. And it brought glory and honor to the Lord. We're to look to Christ. Look at verse number 15 back in John, verse 15. At the end of verse 14, he likens Moses lifting up this serpent in the wilderness to the Son of Man, Jesus, who must also be lifted up. And that term lifted up has the idea of to be, it has the idea of to be crucified, but it also... Uh, uh, can be connected to Jesus being glorified and exalted. And, I, and I'll say this, uh, the cross of Christ wasn't the end of Christ's glory, it was the beginning of it. At least in the salvation of people, it was the beginning of it. Verse number 15, he says, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? That's the question. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? It says in verse 15 that whosoever believeth in him, in Jesus Christ, should not perish, but have eternal life. And I dare say most everybody in this room would answer yes to that question. Yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. But can I ask you how you believe in him? Hebrews 11 and verse 6 says, but without faith it is impossible to please him. Without faith. But what kind of faith? Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I think many people, many, many people would say that they believe in Jesus. But what do they believe about him? Why do you believe in Jesus? Again, we just read at the end of chapter 2 that many believed because of the good works and because of the miracles that Jesus did. And Jesus looks at them and knowing their hearts does not believe in them. Some people define faith as understanding, coming to an understanding. Or some define faith as acknowledging that something is true. I believe that's true. In other words, I say Jesus, the Bible says Jesus is God's son. He died, he was buried, he rose again the third day. And many might say, acknowledge that, yeah, I believe that's true. I believe. I believe that Jesus did miracles. I believe that he was a good teacher. I believe that he's God. 
I think this is a common faith. Acknowledging. Others might even say that faith is a heartfelt agreement. Understanding truths about Jesus, though, is not enough for salvation. I understand the premise of many things that I don't agree with. Acknowledging Christ intellectually, that he existed, or even agreeing in our hearts with what we know is true is still not enough, because saving faith, I believe, is different from common faith. Saving faith is understanding that God cannot overlook or tolerate our sin because God is holy. I'm going to give you three parts to this. Saving faith. Understanding that God cannot overlook or tolerate our sin because God is holy. Agreeing. Number two, agreeing that you are a sinner that needs the Savior because God is just. You see, God is holy. None of us measure up to his holiness before we're saved. None of us. But God is also just. That means God will punish sin. And he is just and he is righteous to punish sin. And he always does the right thing in punishing sin. Common faith is, I believe that Jesus was a good man. If you say he is God and the Bible, okay, he died, that's fine. I'm good with all that. You know, I'll even sing praises to his name and I'll give and be a part of a church. It's possible for a person to be religious and not saved, to have common faith. But do you understand that God cannot overlook or tolerate our sin because he's holy? Do you agree that you're, a, that you're a sinner that needs the Savior because God is just, because he's going to punish sin? And thirdly, do you choose to depend and trust in Christ to forgive your sins and to give you his righteousness? Have you depended upon him for that? Have you entrusted your life to him? God, I know that I'm a sinner, and I know that I've sinned against you because I'm holy, because you're holy. God, I, I agree that it, because of my sin and because you are just, that you have to punish my sin. My sin has to be punished. And Lord, I understand that I can't do anything to save myself. And so I'm looking to you and to your word to save me and deliver me from my sin to take my sin and to give me your righteousness. I've mentioned it to you before, but for sake of illustration, I'm going to bring it up again today. You know, what we're talking about here when we talk about our sinfulness and God's righteousness and him giving us his righteousness and him becoming our sin that's an ex, a, a marvelous exchange that takes place when a person believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. When the people in Numbers chapter 21 who had sinned and complained and complained and murmured against God, who deserved death according to God, when they took God at his word and looked, just had to look at the pole, there was nothing magical about the pole. There was nothing impressive about the bronze serpent. They acted in faith. They took God at his word, and that's when salvation from that snake bite happened. There's nothing magical about an invitation, or this pulpit, or this building, or me. It is when you and I take God at his word, and we believe upon him that salvation takes place. And this is what happens when you and I believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. On this side, we might have what we could, we could call... Uh, the sins of mankind, and we could have lying, and we could have stealing, and we could have covetousness, and idolatry, and adultery, and at the end we could have eternal death, separation from God, and we could write our names at the top. And on the other side, we could have the name of Jesus, and we could have truth, and love, and goodness, and righteousness, and holiness, and justice, and mercy, and grace, and we could have at the bottom eternal life. We have Jesus' name at the top. But you remember Jesus, as Jesus refers Nicodemus to here, to, he says, the Son of Man must be lifted up. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to become the sins. He's going to take upon himself, he who is sinless is going to, what took upon himself the sins of the whole world. Every one of your sins and every one of my sins, he took upon his body that day. 
the price has already been paid. He's already, God's already judged the sin. It's been paid for. And when you and I believe and trust our salvation, our lives, into the care of the Lord Jesus Christ, we believe upon him, we take God at his word, and we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ to save us from our sins, here's what he does. And here's what he's done in many of our lives. For illustration's sake, with all these wicked, godless sins here, our name is crossed out, and the name of Jesus is placed there. And on the other side, Jesus' name is crossed out, and all of these attributes of God, communicable attributes of God, eternal life, our name is put there. And God actually gives to us what we never have deserved, and that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He died so that you and I could be made the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Friend, he's already, he's already done this part of it. He's already taken our sins upon his body. And you remember on the cross as he hung there, you remember as the, the sky grew dark, the Bible records for us, and he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why? Because he who was holy became sin. He became our sin so that we could be made the righteousness of God. Look at verses 16 and 17. And we see his love here. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That's how much he loved us. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's his purpose that we would have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Friends, God did not send his Son, his only begotten Son, into this world to condemn you and me. Now, I've, we've talked about sin. We've talked about, we all know that we're sinners. I've never met a person yet who said, Pastor, I'm not a sinner. I've never met that person yet. We all know that we're sinners. Where we tend to bristle is on the consequences. I know I'm a sinner, but I don't think I deserve that. That's where we tend to bristle. But remember, believing upon Christ is to agree with God in his punishment. He's, Jesus has already suffered for you and for me for all of our sins. The real question is, will we accept the love of God that God has given to us? You know, verse 16, I think, is probably one of the most well-known verses on the face of the earth talks about God's motive, how God loves us, sinful man. God so loved the world, the whosoever. In 1 John 4 and verse 10, the Bible says, herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son. God loves us, sinners. Dying in our sins, unable to help ourselves. How much does he love us? Well, verse 16 tells us that God so loved, he so loved that he gave his only begotten son. Now, I have two sons. Who would I be willing to give my sons for, either one? I already read a passage to you. Some might be willing to die for a good man. But he died for us. We see why God loved us this way. That we should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, a question might rise to your mind this morning, and you might say, well, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? My answer to you would be this. There are many people in hell today that rejected God's love. But there is no one in hell today, nor will there ever be a person in hell who was not loved. Did you hear that? People go to hell, and it's a real place, and we all deserve to go there. But there is no one there who has not been loved by God who has not had the opportunity to receive his love. 
And so my question as we conclude this morning is, how have, have you believed upon the Son of God? Do you understand that God cannot overlook or tolerate your sin? Do you agree that you're a sinner that needs the Savior because God is just and your sin will be punished? And will you choose to depend and trust in Christ to forgive your sins and to, to give you his righteousness? I'll close with an illustration and we'll be done. In 1859, there was a man by the name of Charles Blondin. He was an entertainer. He was an acrobat. He was a Frenchman. Um, he came to the United States and... Um, In 1859, he did some acts over Niagara Falls. And what Charles Blondin would do with his promoters, they would stretch a a line 1,100 feet long from one side of the falls to the other side of the fall. Now, there are pictures. You can Google it, okay? I don't think there's any video from 1859, but you can Google it. In fact, in one picture, it almost looks like the line is... I don't know, I don't, I don't think you'd be out there with any wind, but it almost looks like it's, it's got this swale in it from one way to the other. Charles Blondin would walk that rope 1,100 feet from one side of the falls to the other. 1,100 feet. No lines, no helicopters above, nothing. 1859. The, the rope was stretched 190 feet above the bottom of the falls. Um, one day he, he, he took his, his promoter and put him on his back and carried him across the falls. Another time he took off uh, the tire off of a wheelbarrow and he took the wheelbarrow, walked the wheelbarrow across the falls. You know, I would fall about two feet in. Uh, there, now this isn't Bible, okay, but some historical accounts say that he actually put a pot belly stove in the wheelbarrow with coals in it got it to the center of the falls and ate an egg or an omelet. I don't know if I believe that. Whatever the case, he came back with the wheelbarrow and the people loved him, okay? Like, they liked to be entertained in 1859 like we tend to want to be entertained today. Whatever the case, he came back with his wheelbarrow and everybody was cheering and Charles Blondin was, he was popular and Charles Blondin asked a question of the crowd. He said, how many of you believe that I can take a, a man and put him in the wheelbarrow and take a man in the wheelbarrow across the falls to the other side, 1,100 feet, 190 feet up. And they all were, they, the crowd went wild. They loved it. And they were all cheering, we believe, we believe, we believe. And they were all cheering. And Charles Blondin looked at a man and he said, you, sir, get in the wheelbarrow. And the historical account says the man ran. Okay. And you know what? He should have. Okay. I'm not asking anybody to get in a wheelbarrow with Charles Blondin from 1859 and go across the falls. But you know, that man believed that Charles Blondin could go across back and forth. He believed that he could do it with a wheelbarrow. That man could believe that Charles Blondin could do it with a man in the wheelbarrow, but he was not willing to entrust himself to Charles Blondin to go across the falls. And you may be here this morning... And you believe that Jesus, you believe a lot of what the Bible says about Jesus, and that he came from heaven and he died, rose again. And intellectually, you concede to all of these things, but you have never entrusted your soul to him to save you from death and hell. You have a common faith, but you do not have saving faith. What I'm asking you this morning is, you need to get in the wheelbarrow. Now, that's kind of silly to say it that way. There's no wheelbarrow. It's God who dwelt among us, who died for the sins of the whole world, who raised from the dead, who sits on the right hand of the Father, who will someday rule and reign. I don't know where you're at this morning. But have you believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation? Because he is salvation. First John says, He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Believing about him, 
believing that he existed is nice, but it's not saving faith. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes this morning.